do a little magic trick here, not really, but out of the baptismal bowl is a scale. And you're wondering, why does Dan have a scale? I didn't bring a large one. Thanks to Jenny Lynn, she reminded me that I have a little coffee scale. But why I want to show you a physical scale is that scales carry so much weight in our lives, doesn't it? Like literally it carries our, and tells us our weight, but in another sense, scales dictate and run our lives from the time we're born till the day we die. I mean, you think about when people have children, we all care about how much they weigh, right? And the heavier they are, the better until maybe they reach like nine pounds and then you're freaking out. But case in point, our daughter who's four years old, she hates sitting in her car seat because her two older siblings get to just ride in a booster or nothing at all. And so every single day, she would weigh herself, hoping that she would turn 40 pounds so that she could get rid of her car seat and ride in her booster. And every single day, she would fall short, 38 pounds, 38.5. And lo and behold, one day, she finally hit 40, and she threw out this loud cry out of excitement and exuberance because she finally made weight. Or you think about wrestlers. They have a love-hate relationship with weight, don't they? I mean, I was talking to John Cho, and if you don't know, he used to be a wrestler, an all-star wrestler for Clayton, or not for Clayton, for Ledoux High. And he told me about one time when he was about four pounds short of making weight for his wrestling match. And he got in, he was fully dressed in all of his gear, went into a sauna, and worked out in a sauna for hours until he finally dropped those four pounds. Or you think about, sadly, for a lot of us, the struggle that we have with weight and body image. And how a lot of us don't even want or hide the scale, and yet somehow it always seems to show up because of our struggle with our own body image and weight. See, scales carry a lot of weight in our lives. And the reason I bring up scales this morning is that this interpretation, this handwriting on the wall, meeny, meeny, tekel, parson, are actually words that refer to weights. They used it back in the time because they didn't have actual currency. They used weights as currency so that if you wanted to buy something, you would use grain or rice or some kind of form of trading and you would have to have exact measurements to be able to say, this is what I'm going to trade you with. And they would use weights for commercial transactions. And here, this handwriting on the wall from God himself, meaning, meaning, tekel, parson, are just words for weight. But what Daniel does is he recognizes this interpretation and uses these different vowel points and inflections to give us the deeper meaning of why God gives this interpretation or this handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar. And here, let me give you what the meaning is, and we read it in verses 25 through 28. But meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. That's the charge. The charge has been brought to King Belshazzar. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
That's the evaluation. That's the assessment. His assessment is that you have been weighed in the balance and you have been found wanting. And then lastly, Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That's the verdict. The char He's been charged, he's been assessed, evaluated, and lastly, he's given, been given his verdict. In essence, what God is saying to King Belshazzar is you've been assessed, weighed and counted, and been found lacking. In other words, you don't measure up. King Belshazzar, you do not measure up, and your verdict is death. You see how different and stark the contrast between King Nebuchadnezzar for the four, past four chapters have been? And here, what do we find at the end of this chapter? He's dead. He's taken over by the Medes, the Persians. And what I want us to look at this morning is that this handwriting isn't just for Belshazzar. It's for us. And lastly, what we'll see is that this writing on the wall isn't just the writing on the wall. It's the handwriting on the cross. So first, we have to look at the handwriting for Belshazzar. This is what Daniel is saying to King Belshazzar. God has been watching and he is acting. You don't pass muster. You've been rejected and your kingship is over. Why? Well, clearly in this narrative that we look at, this king throws this gigantic party that could only be described as decadent, overindulgence, lustful, drunkenness, gluttony, pleasure-seeking, excessiveness. There is all this food, there's all this wine, there's concubines, so there's orgies going on. And it is just this crazy feast that he throws. But here's the thing, don't miss this. The Persians are ready to pounce. They are ready to come and destroy and take over Babylon. You see, Babylon was under siege. And there's actually historical evidence that shows there was this great feast that was thrown when the Persians come and take over and kill the king. It's actually in our historical writings. And I think what we see here is in his idolatrous worship, he thinks that he is absolutely safe. Even with them being under siege, he's got these fortresses, he's got the walls, he's got his palace, and nothing can penetrate. And he could continue to worship idols, he could forsake God, he could act in outward rebellion. We see that's the importance of the vessels of gold and silver. Because those were artifacts used for God's people in worship. And we see that in chapter 1 verse 2 when we first started this book. But King Nebuchadnezzar takes over all of God's people's worship artifacts and vessels and cups. And he takes them and brings them into his own temple. But here, out of complete rebellion, Belshazzar takes out, because he's probably drunk, in full rebellion, he brings out God's worshipful acts of vessels and artifacts and uses them to drink. You know what that's like? That's like... A basketball, a leather NBA real authentic basketball with Michael Jordan's signature on it and a sibling taking it out of its case, dribbling it on asphalt, tearing up all the leather, and she doesn't even know who Steph Curry or LeBron James is. 
That's what's happening. It is an outcry. It is outright rebellion against God. And we see this in Belshazzar. His heart has been turned away. He's worshiping idols made of gold, silver, stone, iron, wood. And he takes out these cubs in defiance against God. Complete defiance. And rebels against him. And Daniel makes note of that because as soon as he takes it out and starts using these vessels that were for God's people and in worship, that's exactly right when the handwriting comes. The hand comes down and the writing begins. And it's God's crying out saying, you have been judged, you have been evaluated, and your verdict is death. He should have known better. And that's what the role of the queen is. We didn't go into that. Or we did go into that in verse 10. But the queen knows better. She remembers God and his faithfulness to King Nebuchadnezzar. She remembers Daniel, this follower of Yahweh, the Lord, the king of the universe. But Belshazzar completely just forgets, renounces, acts out in rebellion against this God who he should have known about, who he does know about, but desires to worship himself, idols, and rebels against the Lord. Now, before we get too excited and go, yeah, this is for King Belshazzar, we have to recognize this is also for us. This handwriting on the wall is for us. Think about it. For the past four chapters, four weeks, we've been looking at King Nebuchadnezzar versus king of the universe. And I've been reflecting on how Many times we can come into Sunday mornings and we could worship and we say, we bend our knee and we confess and repent and we receive God's forgiveness and we say the things that we need to say. But then as soon as Monday through Saturday happens, we are also bowing our knees to other things, right? The idolatry of performance, power, approval, achievement, family, relationships, ideology, work, control, comfort. The list can go on and on. But we bow our knee not only to the Lord, but we also bow our knee to many other idols. And we also act out in rebellion against the Lord, don't we? I mean, today is Pentecost Sunday. That's why we changed the colors from white to red. But what is Pentecost about? It is that the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts. This Holy Spirit that teaches us, convicts us. Reminds us of God's presence in our lives every single moment of every single day. He gives us comfort, hope, joy, the fruits of the fruit of the Spirit. But yet, what do we do? We mistreat our spouses. We mistreat our children. We mistreat our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. We lose self-control in anger. We covet. We're gluttonous. In all of these ways, though the Holy Spirit for us who follow Jesus, though the Spirit resides in us, what do we do? We grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve Him. Every time we act out in rebellion against the Lord, we know better. And yet still we go for the things our heart desires, don't we? We are just like King Belshazzar. We worship other things. We act out in rebellion. 
And if you can't get a sense of that in your own lives, just look at your own children or look at your nephews and nieces or look at the children in our own church. But every time you see them act out in rebellion and they act crazy and disobey and you go, what in the world is wrong with you? Just pause for a moment and go, that is exactly how we are with our Heavenly Father. The way we see and we see how our children act and how kids act is how we are with the king of the universe. We worship ourselves. We think we are the ones that the planets circle around. We rebel in complete defiance. We throw hissy fits and tantrums because we don't get what we want. This is us, and the handwriting is for us. We have been judged. We have been evaluated. And the punishment is also one of judgment, of death, just like Belshazzar. And sometimes even our good intentions don't pass muster. It could be your care for justice, social issues. It could be your care for race relations. It could be your desire why you even come on Sunday morning so that your children grow up moral and good. All of that still doesn't pass muster. You see, we've been assessed. We've been judged. And our verdict is one of judgment and death as well. So what do we do? Is our fate sealed? You know, a lot of times you, you hear the euphemism, the handwriting is on the wall. And we think of that as fatalism, right? We're doomed. That is our fate. But what's amazing is that the handwriting on the cross is actually an invitation. It's not a fate that is sealed. It is not fatalism. But it is actually an invitation. It's an invitation to be able to see the handwriting on the wall through the cross of Jesus. This is where everything changes. The writing on the wall isn't some euphemism that our fate is sealed. But you see, rather, at the cross is where the fate is sealed upon the son of the king, Jesus himself. In Jesus' suffering and death, it is that which pays for our judgment, our sin, our deficiencies, even our good intentions. The cross is actually a verdict upon us. He had to die for us because we don't measure up. All our brokenness, our, fail, our, our failure, as well as our successes and good intentions don't add up. God's wrath was poured upon his own son. And that cross is God's message to us about how he feels about injustice, pride, brokenness, rebellion, sin. You see, it matters. But that wrath and that judgment is no longer upon us. It's upon Christ. That cross is that verdict upon us. Knowing that it's him who died because we don't measure up. We don't pass muster. We don't make weight. And that's the invitation for us. It doesn't have to end like Belshazzar. We don't actually have to die in judgment. See, that's where we are invited to see the cross. 
that it's not just a verdict or a sentence, but it's also this invitation for us to receive him. Not because we're good enough, not because we're successful enough, not because we have everything in order, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. The cross says that we will never make weight. We will never pass muster. But in Jesus, the scales are thrown away. They're abolished. We don't have to think about that scale that puts so much weight upon our lives anymore. You see, King Belshazzar had a chance. He had an opportunity to repent. He had an opportunity to acknowledge his own failures and his own inadequacies. That happened in the book of Jonah. Nineveh received judgment. They were going to die and be wiped away. That was their sentence. But yet what do they do? They dress themselves in sackcloth. And they repent. And God relents. Though there is judgment, it doesn't have to end the way of Belshazzar. We look upon the cross. We look upon our own inadequacies, thinking that we can make weight. Thinking that if we just do enough, we're good enough. We do the right things that we will pass muster. And it's acting out in repentance, knowing that it's only because of the cross, because he has done it for us, that he's the only one who can make way, Jesus himself. It's then that we are free. We can experience forgiveness. It's there that we find safety, not in the fortresses that we build, not in the palaces and the kingdoms we build, but only upon the cross we are finally able to truly experience freedom from trying to make weight every single day of your lives, whether it's work, your children, your successes. That's what it means. I want to share a story as we close. About a year and a half ago in China, four residential buildings collapsed. And about 12 hours after laboring, these rescue workers found one final survivor in the rubble of the cement and in all the metal and all the dirt and dust. They found this three-year-old girl. She was, she was buried deep in the massive pile of crumbled cement metal where this old building, poorly constructed buildings stood. These rescue workers made the discovery of this three-year-old girl when they removed this thick cement pillar only to find her father's body draped over her, shielding her from the crushing weight of the building. He died. But she, only, she survived with only minor scrapes. And this is what one worker told reporters. The child was able to survive entirely thanks to the fact that her dad used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for his daughter. You see, we are that three-year-old girl, and the cross is the only place where we will find that life-saving space. Cross, Christ has taken all that weight of everything that is piled upon us, and he has freed us, not only to find safety, but to find hope, peace, 
freedom, the lifting off of all the burden that we carry. And it's when we go to the cross that we will be able to find that safety. What is that for you? It could be the scale of beauty, the scale of motherhood, fatherhood, career success, popularity. It could be moral performance. For students, it could be your academic achievements. It could be the scale of whatever the world says is worthy. Whatever it is, they have all been nailed to the cross. And in the cross, we will find safety. That's why this morning we need this table. It's a table where we find our place of safety, where all the burdens that we carry are lifted because on the cross is our verdict. We can't do it. We will never be able to make weight, but it's here we can finally realize that it's because Christ has done it. He's made weight. He's gone on that scale and he's reached 40 pounds. He's gone on that scale and made weight so that he can wrestle. You see, so when we come to the table, we can find as we eat and drink together, we are freed from all the burden that we feel, and he carries it for us. Let's pray together and ask for the Holy Spirit to do that now as we come to the table.